One of the core things we're addressing in this project on drafting a written constitution is the nature of Parliament. So we have to work out what we've got at the moment. I'm joined today by Clark of the Journals, a man who's worked in the House of Commons for over 30 years in a post that began as long ago as 1750, the custodian of parliamentary procedure, Paul Evans. Paul, one of the first things that people looking at the Constitution for the first time find mystifying is what to call Parliament. Is it the Queen in Parliament? Is it a bicameral legislator? Where does the government fit in all of it? Yes. Well, I suppose that the easiest way to look at Parliament is to think about it as having descended from the King, the monarch, at some point. And back in the mists of time, and we don't really know when, obviously the King gathered around him some wise councillors and so forth. And this Almost like William the Conqueror-ish. Yes. Yeah. Well, as far back as, I mean, we, we're celebrating the 750th anniversary of Simon de Montfort's Parliament mm -hmm. when we see the first thing emerging. But before that, we know there were councils around the King. And, it's, and that kind of formed into the House of Lords. And uh, we had the Magna Carta, of course, as well. The barons forming, uh, asserting their power over the King. And then gradually we see the two, house, the two parts dividing. And it happened quite gradually that they began to meet separately. I mean, there was one bit which was a sort of super posh bit, is that it? Which yes. was always sort of the sorts of people who turn up in Shakespeare. The inner circle, yeah, right. absolutely. And did that spin out to become something called the Privy Council at another level, who are the key advisers to the Crown? Was that sort of more or less the same lot? It was more or less the same lot as the House of Lords, I think, to begin with, mm -hmm. back in the midst of time we talk about again. And then the Privy Council was, became a bit like what we'd call the Cabinet now. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got the larger House of Lords, and then out came the middle classes, if you like to call them yeah. that, the barons anyway, who um, formed the House of Commons. Oh, so when Burgess. did the House of Commons get going? Was it quite early on as well? We think it was, though we, yeah. as I say, we only identified it as 750 years ago with Simon yeah. de Montfort. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that's where it begins to emerge. The Commons. A, the Commons, as a separate house. So, so the sovereignty that the king enjoyed as a unique autocrat, a, a tyrant, if you like, in some ways, though they could be quite benign at times, began to be shared with this other group, mm -hmm. which finally di eventually divided into two other groups, the commons and the lords. So that sovereignty was retained by the three. So unlike a place with a written constitution, where you set up a house and an upper house, a lower house and an upper house, and a president, this all emerged out of a kind of muddy mist that eventually became the sovereign parliament. So a bit like sort of evolution, except not evolution. Things are tried, they work, they make for better governance, they are kept on, and over time, people without knowing quite why, do things in a rigorous way, in the same sort of way, and that's called sort of parliamentary democracy as we understand it today. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit like evolution. It's also a struggle, it's, you know, the, the, the struggle for dominance between these elements, between the king, the the, the nobility and the commoners. Mm -hmm. So as they struggle, they form it, it reforms around these things and you develop a set of rules. Mm -hmm. And of course our constitution is famously not written down mm -hmm. and those rules about how the three bits of parliament relate to each other have evolved over time, over the centuries, in the same way. So let's take an example would be in the recent BBC version of Wolf Hall, the king, yes. King Henry VIII, Indeed. is seen in what I guess is the House of Lords, we mm -hmm. call it today. And he's sort of peering at Lords as they vote a certain measure through. Indeed. And many change their minds, thinking better, I think, of their original decision. Was that historically accurate? Did the King or Queen, as it might have been, turn up in the House of Lords and or Commons? Uh, 
Well, we know that he was present and the houses met around him. And we also know that since King Charles I, he was the last monarch to be present in the House of Commons. And we see this symbolised at the beginning of every, par of, of every session of Parliament where the, the Queen arrives. She's allowed into the House of Lords, but she's not allowed into the House of Commons. The House of Commons come up to the House of Lords to see her, precisely because for many centuries the Commons didn't allow the King to know what they were talking about. They just gave their decisions. They met secretly. So really, there was a difference between the two. The Lords were allied into the King's councillors and advisers, or Queen's, whereas the Commons was a bit more bulgy. Indeed. Yeah. And of course, the House of Lords was made up of people who the King had appointed. Mm -hmm. As in a slightly distant sense, it still is mm -hmm. made by royal appointment. Whereas the Commons was elected by the people, or elected by a group of people. The Cabinet has emerged in the same process of sort of constitutional osmosis, hasn't it? They're all within Parliament, Commons yes. or less widely known, Lords on occasion. Indeed. And, and you talked about the Privy Council earlier. Out of that private council that advised the King, when power moved decisively to the Commons after the 17th century, and we got a Prime Minister for the first time, and then the government began to form around the Prime Minister, and it was the Prime Minister who had the political power as opposed to the monarch. Sort of 1720s or something, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, he began to appoint ministers, though they were still the King's ministers, and they still are the Queen's ministers. And the Cabinet began to form as the decisive decision, the decision-making body within yeah. the organisation. And the Privy Council has, over the centuries, gone away to become oh. a rather ceremonial yeah. Creation. And minister means just to minister advice, so it's as simple as that. And prime means top, is that right? It sort of grows like that as ways of describing Yes. Yeah. Councillors. Indeed, councillors. That's yeah. exactly it. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. You've worked there for years. Do you love the way in which it sort of slowly grows in this way, almost as though it's a kind of organism, learning through generations how better to connect with its people? Or do you think that's sort of bogus, what I've just said? No, I, I think there's a lot to be said for it. There are a lot of people who want a written constitution, want think it's unscientific and unclear how our constitution works. And the, that's a perfectly valid argument. And we look to the USA or France, yeah. where they had a revolution and wrote a constitution and understand everything. People will often say that if you want to see what the House of Commons was like in the 17th century, the best place to look nowadays is the House of Representatives in Washington. <laughs> and so that's one of the problems... Yeah. with a written constitution, is they become stuck in time. And the great advantage of the way we've done it is messy and unsatisfactory in some ways, but the big advantage is it does contain this organic evolution, yeah. the way in which things have developed. There's been no need particularly for a referendum to change the thing because nobody knows quite where the thing is. <laughs> and so we've managed to have sort of European power drift in and yes. Scottish power sort of drift across... And is a downside of that, that that lack of clarity in the end becomes counterproductive and we do need to make big decisions about the place. Has the time come to make it clearer? Well, that's... So, yes, the, the advantages of the evolutionary system are certainly that things can happen perhaps less violently, you know, that, that you don't have to have the arguments out in the open. They can evolve. The disadvantage is that you're left with a bit of a muddle. And sovereignty is, is exactly that. So we, we start with the autocrat, the single king. We've divided it up. We've handed power over effectively to the people. And we've begun to share our sovereignty with the European Union. And we 
took away the sovereignty of Ireland, Scotland and Wales over the course of history, whether voluntarily or not, is an argument you can have with the members of those nations, and they want to take it back again. Yeah. And that's where you, I think you get the problem. Is yeah. it, the evolutionary process is quite good for growing and sharing your sovereignty. It's not very good for reasserting your sovereignty. That's the point at which people want to get things clearer. And we've got the theory of clear parliamentary sovereignty. Yes. But it'd be an unusual person who argued that that trumps the European power at the moment, wouldn't it? It would be. And parliamentary sovereignty is one of those things that people hang on to and use as a, as a rhetorical device. I don't think many people know what it means. One version of parliamentary sovereignty is that it can do absolutely anything it likes. It's a total arbitrary... Within that little circle of yeah. the two houses and the crown, it can do anything it likes. Well, that's kind of theoretically true, but we all know it's not actually true. If it does something that the people don't like, there'll be a revolution. Yeah. If it, it's decided to share its sovereignty with Europe, if it does something which the international community doesn't put up with, it'll be invaded or whatever. You know. So there's so practical realities. It's that the practical reality is yeah. you're always negotiating yeah. sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Now we could, in theory, withdraw from the European Union, mm -hmm. reassert our sovereignty, but are we going to have another armada to have a battle with the Spanish fishing fleet? Probably we prefer to have an international agreement which involves us giving some away in return mm -hmm. for what we get in mm -hmm. back. There could well be another referendum on Scotland if things go according to SNP plans, couldn't there? There could indeed. And, and people talk about English devolution. If you look back into the 19th century, the great era of local government, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, they, they created their own statutory framework. They created local government. They, made, they, had, they provided the gas, the lighting, the sewers, and all this kind of thing on their own volition. And then gradually over the 20th century, local government was really pretty much absorbed into central government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and the same process may, again, we may, we, we're seeing the stirrings of a desire for independence even within the regions of England, greater separation from, from central government. And the other impact there is on the reality of parliamentary sovereignty is human rights. Indeed. Uh, so there's sort of an obligation now, when acting as a parliament, sovereign or whatever, to accord not only with domestic human rights law, but also with European human rights law, and really if we're being perfectionist about it, United Nations declarations on this and covenants on that. So really we have a picture of a parliament that is still sovereign, legally, uh, but that has chosen previous parliaments, this parliament, to compromise its power, control its power, share its power, hand its power over and so on. Yes. So all of that could be undone as a matter of strict law. Some parties fighting the election indeed want it done. It would be a huge reassertion of something that was never clear when it existed anyway. So it would be uh, it would be a revolutionary act to try and claim mm -hmm. that parliamentary sovereignty could refuse to allow that, that those compromises that have been made to be undone, to be renegotiated and so on. They're always in the process of renegotiation. You can't just seal, stop the thing mm -hmm. like that. That's not political reality. So you're not a nostalgist for a time when the person who held your office but three yes controlled vast amounts of the globe through the power of Parliament and the economic power of Britain? Um, I'm not a nostalgist for it, no. My, one of my predecessors, the most famous clerk in the House of Commons, a man called Thomas Erskine May, wrote a book about how Parliament worked, and his first edition was in 1844. And in it, he describes parliamentary sovereignty. And uh, I can't quote it for you exactly, but what I like about his definition, he says, the Imperial Parliament, as it then was, can make the laws for 
the whole of the United Kingdom and for all the empire. And there are no constraints on its power whatsoever except the same constraints that exist everywhere and through all time on the power of any tyrant, which is the willingness of the people to consent or their readiness to resist. And that's where the world in which Parliament exists. It's in the process of negotiation with the people, with other parliaments, with other nations and so on. And that process is going on all the time. There's never been a point at which Parliament could do anything it liked and be sure that it could force it down anyone's throat, as it were. Paul Evans, thank you very much. Thank you.